Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Today, we're starting with a big return from uh, Buffett, Warren Buffett and Berkshire's big investment in Bank of America. And then we're moving to some gaming of TV industry ratings. Uh, so, Chris, let's start with Berkshire Bank of America. And actually, uh, you know... Well, let me start from the beginning. So last week, Warren Buffett became the largest shareholder in Bank of America, taking a 7% stake in the company that's worth about $17 billion. And literally right as we were about to podcast today, it's, uh, news came out that Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway are about to buy Texas energy distributor Encore for $17.5 billion. So mm-hmm. it's not many people that you can say the $17 billion deal they did this month wasn't their biggest deal. But for Buffett, it is. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about Encore later, but kind of just broke, so we don't have anything now. But anyway... Bank of America move. Uh, this was the move that was made possible. The Fed last week allowed Bank of America to boost their dividend after passing distress tests, and Warren Buffett decided to uh, exercise a bunch of warrants and his $5 billion in preferred stock that he got from uh, giving Bank of America $5 billion in preferred in a 2011, not really rescue deal, but financing deal. Uh, this is going to result in a $12 billion paper profit for Berkshire, so not too bad. Uh, at $17 billion, the Bank of America stake is worth about what Berkshire's uh, Coke position is worth. That's worth about $18 billion. It trails only Apple at $20 billion, Kraft Heinz at $27 billion, and Wells Fargo at $30 billion as his biggest equity stakes. Uh, so Chris, what do you think of the Bank of America move? Well, to date, it has been okay in percentage terms if you just look at the underlying publicly available securities. Uh, it has been great in uh, terms of the actual securities and how he structured this, and it's been spectacular in dollar terms. I mean, if this was uh, all that you had accomplished in your life just on this one thing, it was rather uh, uh, spectacular. Uh, Perspectively, ho-hum, you know, he probably looks at this and says, well, it beats the cost of capital. Um, But it's exactly what Warren and Charlie were warning about in terms of the burdens of being too rich and having too much money to manage. A fancy problem indeed, but one that uh, that kind of have some fairly conventional parts of their portfolio going forward. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I think you're exactly right. You know, Buffett at this point, he's got... Way too much money, way more money than he knows what to do with. And I think when he looks at Bank of America, he sees something today. You know, he said in his annual letter, I think he was like, Bank of America has been buying back shares and we love it when they do that. So he probably thinks it's a little bit undervalued for a bank with a really nice deposit franchise. You know, is this the most exciting investment of all time? Absolutely not. But, you know, when you can switch these warrants into into common stock, you don't have to pay any taxes, you Mm -hmm. know. 35% 35% tax rate on a uh, $12 billion paper gain. That's a lot of tax rate. It certainly beats the cost of capital. So, I, you know, I think it makes it makes sense. It He's makes sense. an enthusiast of taxes in uh, theory, less so, less so in practice. Um, this, was, this was, what I have to say, the world's least stressful stress test, but uh, they were able to pass and do this. I also think it's an example of perhaps the world's uh, friendliest and most subtle activism that he had really... Uh, uh, guided them publicly or uh, encouraged them by saying that he would flip them out if they got this dividend uh, uh, up. And so uh, and so they did. Yeah, so one thing that's kind of striking me as we talk about this, you know, it, we've got Wells Fargo is his biggest position. He owns mm-hmm. about 10% of that, worth $30 billion. Bank of America, his second biggest, or I think fifth biggest position. He owns 7% of that, worth $17 billion. One of his uh, investing lieutenants sits on the JP Morgan board. We know he owns a personal stake in JP Morgan, though obviously it's not, you know, 
at 5% of the bank. But one thing that's kind of been hitting me is uh, Berkshire earlier this year, they had to sell some of their Wells Fargo shares because they didn't want to become a bank holding company and own more than 10%. At what point do you think regulators come and look and say, well, uh, Berkshire is one of the largest insurers in the one of the largest insurers in America. They own ten percent of Wells Fargo, almost ten percent of Bank of America. They have influence on J.P. Morgan. At what point do you think they start regulating them as a systemically important financial institution, or even come and look at Berkshire and say, "Hey, you you need to break up. You can't control this much of this many banks and kind of exert exert this much influence, even if you don't necessarily sit on the Wells Fargo." And Bank of America boards. It's an interesting question. You know, they're not a bank holding company, uh, and they uh, do have to go through just by the nature of the size of it. Typically, have to go through the HSR uh, process, and these things have kind of been perfunctory, and, and they've been good actually at getting exemptions sometimes in the past. Uh, but they are. Um, it's very interesting. There, there, there's not. It's not clear kind of what the lever would be to actively coordinate. Although when your interests are both visible uh, and directionally clear, there's a lot of uh, indirect coordination. Yeah. You know, you could see this on the airlines. You could see this in the banks. You could see this in a number of their big concentrated positions. Uh, and it doesn't actually. Uh, it's going to be tricky for the regulators because it doesn't actually take active. Uh, coordination when you know the interests and uh, you know what benefits them. Yeah, I just, it's not even that I'm saying they're going to go to Bank of America and say, hey, raise interest rates so that Wells Fargo can raise interest rates. But, you know, having this one company own 10% of so many different banks, like in a financial crisis, banks may need to raise equity. And if Berkshire itself is stressed, the bank share prices could tank because uh, people are anticipating Berkshire might have to unload shares. Now, Obviously, Warren Buffett runs Berkshire with a kind of rock-solid balance sheet, but you know that doesn't always mean the case. And there have been companies before that people thought had rock-solid balance sheet that you know black swan events do happen. And I have to wonder at what point is Berkshire looked at as kind of too big and it needs to be broken up or something because it is a very big, very important institution. Yeah, and and people might not look at it the right way. Like I, I, I seriously doubt there's going to be any kind of back room smoke filled conversation where he actively coordinates but you can just be you know uh, a little lazy about doing things that would actively hurt the other investments yeah, uh, yeah. The, the the one uh, cartel that i've looked at in a lot of deal, detail if you look at the econometrics of uh, local milk cartels what's interesting about it is that a lot of the antitrust violations historically have not been at high milk prices where they've been fairly competitive in market rates but when milk prices are really low you get very little customer commits but they're actually not low enough yeah they, that's that's what that's what where they really come in and coordinate, not letting it completely fall off the cliff. And so I can imagine defensively they would uh, perhaps uh, be a little bit out uh, for blood less than they would against competitors where they're not this kind of uh, character they're uh, benefiting from both sides. It makes sense. And then, you know, along the same lines, like he's about to buy Encore, which is the largest Texas energy distributor. Mm -hmm. Like they've got massive energy. I think they're the largest energy producer in America at this point. I'm not entirely sure, but Berkshire owns the largest energy producers in a lot of Midwestern states. They own a lot of different things. You know, they're the largest. So you start thinking, hey, they're the largest energy producers. They're the largest energy distributor. They're the most important financial system, financial Investor, like at some point, you have to wonder. Like this, it might it might be the most important institution in America. You have to wonder at what point it's too big. Uh, anything else here? 
uh, more concentrated uh, top echelon of the financial sector than during the financial crisis. I mean, it's it's these uh, these big guys are very big, and they uh, this this one investor is behind both. Um, yeah, and you know everybody's passing the stress test with flying colors, and I think. I, this is not an original thought. You know, the next crisis generally comes from something that you're not looking at. Right now, if, I, if I'm right, I believe the stress test, you know, government securities are valued with uh, pretty much zero risk. You know, you think interest rates move quickly or something. The stress test probably is missing something that could lead to these banks to fail. Right now, they're all passing. You have to wonder. But it, neither here nor there, and I'm no expert in the subject. So uh, anyway, let's turn to the TV ratings game. Uh, so there was a front page article, Wall Street Journal, that, you know, this was just too funny not to talk about. Uh, it mentioned how big networks are playing games to boost their news ratings. So what they'll do is they'll misspell the name of the show on nights that they know ratings will be bad. And when they do that, Nelson doesn't pick up the ratings for that night so it doesn't bring that down their average. And one of the examples they said was, you know, the Friday before Memorial Day is an awful day for ratings for a new show. Everybody's on vacation. Nobody's watching TV. So NBC titled their NBC Nightly News show NBC Nightly News, except they misspelled Nightly N-I-T-E-L-Y, you know, versus the normal nightly. And that show was rated awfully, but because they misspelled it, it didn't come into their averages. It didn't lower their show's average. And uh, NBC News is the number two show. If you had included that in their average, it would have actually had a wider gap versus ABC News. But because they managed to cut that one out, the gap between ABC News number one and NBC Nightly News number two, it actually closed. Uh, NBC's misspelled their show's titles 14 times since the start of the 2006 16 TV season. ABC has done it seven times. CBS has done it 12 times. There were a bunch of other examples of games being played to kind of change the ratings in there. We can go through those if you want. But uh, Chris, you know, this episode of Gamesmanship, I thought it was hilarious, but it also has real impacts. It means advertisers can't really trust the Nelson ratings. And, you know, there were examples of the most watched new show. People played games to become the most watched new show. You can't really trust what the most watched new show is. So it's got actual impacts aside from just being funny. Alternative to you, what do you think of this gamesmanship as the TV execs are calling it? When I saw this article, I was hoping and expecting this would be something you'd want to talk about because I thought it was funny, but it was also uh, terrible. Uh, It's amazing that the advertisers accepted it. It's amazing that Nielsen gets involved, but there's really a problem. Um, When I uh, played lacrosse, uh, I knew a lot of recruiters didn't like highlight videos because they just showed you doing your very best, and it was kind of, what they wanted to see is when there was a problem, how you reacted and so these measurement uh, games really interfere with them saying, hey, there's good and bad. How do you do on average? How do you do when there's a difficult environment? It looks desperate. Uh, and maybe uh, uh, nightly, however you spell that, uh, news uh, should be desperate. Uh, I don't know what age one has to be to wait for the day's news uh, for an evening broadcast, but it has to be getting close to a triple-digit number at this point. Well, so, you know, that is one thing, uh, and that is not what we're trying to talk about, but that's something that's really impacting ESPN, right? Traditionally, ESPN was all about SportsCenter. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it cost almost nothing to make SportsCenter, and there was nowhere else to watch highlights 20 years ago. Now... Everybody watches highlights instantly on Twitter, so there's really no need for a sports center. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, you know, the gamesmanship issues were interesting to me because, like you're saying, if advertisers can't trust these numbers, how do they know what to pay for it? And I think it, it really hurts these TV businesses. It reminds me a little bit, I think we talked about Facebook, how they've had a lot of issue with their data where they would count videos that were kind of auto-played when people were just scrolling through their streams and stuff. And you never think like TV, it's such a traditional medium, you think they would have it nailed down how to measure these uh, metrics. But 
TV TV networks are playing games with these, and it just it's shocking to me that they would do this. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Bank. This is a little harder to do on a podcast when you're writing because. Yeah. The point is they're pronounced the same. When I, when I was spelling Q when or, I was spelling nightly out, I, yeah. I, I realized it was going to be hard to tell readers like nightly spelled wrong. You know, you got to be like discussing a comic book or, yeah. or something. But um, uh, that uh, bank spelled with a Q or a C, you'll see this sometimes, and I think it's very funny. It's an, another intentionally erroneous spelling. It is supposed to be thought of as bank, and it sounds just like bank, but it's adopted by companies to get around regulatory rules that are not technically regulated as a bank. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know. You know what else it reminded me of? You know, a lot of times you'll see really performing – and our – I should say our colleague Rob actually mentioned this to me before the podcast. But a lot of times you will see really performing – poorly performing mutual funds. You mm-hmm. know, they'll just completely change their name, keep the same uh, keep the same management team. But by completely changing their name, they kind of can lose the prior track record and remarket <laughs> to people. Or you'll see mutual funds. They keep the same name, but they'll hire a completely new management team with a completely uh, new strategy. They'll keep the old track record and become – because they do that, they can uh, advertise on the old track record. So it reminds me of all the different little games that people can play by keeping or changing names to keep or change the track record. I, one last spelling thought I have relevant to investing and then one thought on analytics. The spelling thought is if you have a uh, somewhat unexpected during market hours uh, a suspicious looking press release on kind of phony M&A that one of the things you can find if you just throw it in word really quickly is a lot of these people usually have some spelling mistakes yeah. which almost no real press release will and so you find one or two of those and sometimes you can uh, you can fade uh, uh, phony uh, uh, takeover press releases um, and uh, then a slightly more serious thought on Nielsen it shows capture where you have uh, if you're a consumer of analytics and we're a consumer of a lot of analytics and you assume that it's objective once these third parties get really close and they know the people and they know the companies and so forth that just the longer they're looking the more they get captured by the thing that they're supposed to be measuring and the more you have to be wary as a customer of analytics that, that is exactly the point i was trying very ineloquently to make earlier that you know this is supposed to be objective data, and if you can't trust the data, how can advertisers trust it? How can a viewer trust that? This is a really popular show if people can play those games. And I, I think the capture is exactly right. You know, Nielsen's quoted in this article, and they're saying, "Oh yeah, like we're completely cool with uh, we're completely cool with our customers with these networks doing that." And they said, "Hey, there's reasons for it. Like nobody wants the Christmas Eve news to get in their stats because it's so much less watched than everything else. But now, you know, once you make one exception for Christmas Eve." Then you make an exception for Thanksgiving Eve. Then you make an exception for Friday nights. And, you know, at that point, you can you just cannot trust the data anymore. So, you know, I, I think they should just measure everything. And then the most popular show will be the most popular show. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you for last thoughts. I have nothing to add. Great. So that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. Uh, if you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangedcapital.com. I think Chris and I are thinking about starting to interview guests on the podcast. We've traditionally avoided it, but it's two years, so maybe it's time to, it's been two years, so maybe it's time to step out of our shell. If you have any suggestions there, anyone who you want to interview or you want to be interviewed and you're interesting, uh, you know, maybe send us an email and we can talk about that. Uh, Chris, disclosure, I think we're long a little Berkshire and I think that's the only thing we're long today? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, That's all the time we have for today and we'll talk to you guys next week.